Welcome to the Psychology World Podcast. I'm Connor Whiteley, bringing you with psychology news, articles and other interesting psychology related articles. You where I can find the podcast notes and more interesting psychology related things and you can get your free 8 psychology book box set at connorwhiteley.net. Now let's get on to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 154 of the Psychology World Podcast with me Colin Wiley and today's episode is on what is forensic psychopathology and it is Saturday the 11th of June 2022 as I record this. So today's episode I thought I'd really change it up today because most of us are familiar with forensic psychology because we've covered it on the podcast like quite a bit and because I've also got a like, um, large range of books on it. And then like, most of us are familiar with uh, psychopathology because it's the study of like mental health conditions and the much harsher term, mental illnesses. Well, but I bet that so a few of us actually know what forensic psychopathology is. So I know that I most certainly didn't, but after this really interesting podcast episode, I'm really, really glad though that I did actually look at it over because it's just such a great area. So I know that you're going to enjoy this. Moving on to the psychology news section, we're reading from the British Psychological Society Research Digest. And the first one is, young children think that teachers who count out rewards are fairer than those who don't. In just the first few years of life, children develop a strong sense of fairness. At 16 months old, toddlers will reward someone who has fairly distributed food or toys between two other people, for example. By two, they tend to share toys equally themselves. A new study shows that children's judgments of fairness also takes into account the method of which resources have been allocated. Kids as a young as four think that a teacher who counted out cookies for a reward is forever the one who gives the exact same reward without counting. Research published in Cognition suggests that, when judging fairness, young children are able to consider the motivation of the person distributing the resources. So this is a really good one actually because of two main things. Things. So the first one is, is that it really does help to sort of like make us understand that um, young toddlers, young children, children they were like they do have a mind of their own, but it's not the sort of like chaotic, awful. Well, no, but like not so much awful mind, but a sort of strange, chaotic, child, yeah, but like a childish mind that all of us just like think about it because they are able to understand fairness and to be honest, some quite high level concepts if you like think about it because fairness. They take, yeah, but like, that takes in quite a lot of skills, amongst other And then the other thing, which I think is actually, like, quite interesting, is that unlike quite a lot of, like, psychology, in, like, this psychology article, we can actually take stuff and apply the results in everyday life. So, if you've got, like, young children, now, like, in the future, make sure you count when they're giving out stuff. So, the second one is, season of birth is not related to risk of developing depression or anxiety. I didn't know it actually was in the first place. A new study has cast out on historic research suggesting that the season or month of a person's birth is associated with an increased risk of certain mental health conditions. The paper, published in Scientific Reports, looks at symptoms of anxiety and depression amongst more, among more than 70,000 older adults in Europe, and it finds that there is no relationship between when they were born and the likelihood of, of them experiencing anxiety and depression. And as I said, to be honest, I can't even see how it would because the social factors, for example, 
I have no idea how um you know like how the weather will actually be like related to the social factors because all of the social factors are like about your um social network and your own like environmental factors. Again, at the weather, I just can't see biological factors. I don't really know how off the top of my head, yeah, right, how the weather or the season or the month of like your birth like affects your genetics for example and like your um neurons for the um neurogenesis like hypothesis and cognitive because I know that there's seasonal affective disorder. But again though, that's because of other factors which is not related to the month that you're born in. So again, I really don't know how this ever held any water. That's just my thoughts. So the last one is the editor's pick. Dolphin's personality traits are surprisingly similar to our own. Okay. Yesterday was World Oceans Day, so what we're celebrating by revisiting the story from, from last year. We're all familiar with the Big Five model of a personality, which measures the traits of conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, neuroticism, and openness. And that's openness to ego experiences. But what drove the evolution of these personality domains? And how do, an how do animal personalities compare with arts? Answer to the second question that can help to answer the first. A 2021 study of a personality in bottlenose dolphins published in the Journal of um, Comparative Psychology found that in some key ways, dolphin personalities is like our own. In others, though, it is not. So I won't actually go into the nitty gritty of it, but what I do want to mention despite all of the limits in like comparative psychology and comparing human behavior to animal behavior it is still quite important to at least explore like that option now because of course it's like psychology is a science and science must explore in all directions and in all fields though so we must always like compare ourselves to other animals because at the end of the day we are animals animals though because if you're a living thing you're either an animal or you're a plant we certainly aren't plants <laughs> Plants so it is actually quite interesting that we're actually doing this research and these findings that can actually help us to understand ourselves because that you'll probably find that I don't know well I guess there is some sort of like an ancestral link and of course I'm going back like millions of years here to be honest probably but there was a probably a like um, offshoot of dolphins and humans yeah because I was actually watching a um, David Attenborough program for like other year well, and it went through the millions of the years and like how um, the different organisms that like led to apes and then humans actually changed over the years. So very interesting. So I hope that you enjoy the psychology news section. So let's move on to the personal update. So we're moving on to the personal update. <laughs> this week has definitely been doing like lots of like different bits and uh, pieces, but uh, there is some like psychology related stuff which I'll mention in uh, a moment. So, but this week I've mainly been uh, seeing my like, family and uh, doing tons of other like, little bits and uh, pieces, and I've also had some sort of like um, opportunities like um, pop up, but um, I'm not going to talk about them on the podcast like just yet. Many like because one, they're not relevant to psychology. Too, because nothing's really come of them yet, though. But one of the but one of the things I did when I was seeing my family was that um we went to our local cathedral, uh, yeah, like a cathedral to see a sort of well, I don't know what you would call it. Let's say arced exhibition, and all it literally was was a massive um earth just hanging there, 
and we were sort of like, well, I'm so glad they don't charge charge like for it because it's meant to be this really like great thing, and you know, like this really like great thing that's meant to celebrate the earth and nature and everything. And all it was was literally an earth just hanging there. So um, yeah, so there was that, and then there was a bit of like information, which the information was quite interesting. But unless you went over to this tiny clipboard or this tiny like information board, there was literally nothing there. But it was still really nice seeing this family member. And then Nobby like went for lunch, which was really nice. But in terms of like sorry, ecology, well, I've got my improvements back for my literature review. Yeah, which I'll do like next week before my placement ends. But the really exciting thing is that I'm starting to research the the forensic psychology of terrorism and hostage taking. Well, this will definitely be a book that will be coming out next year. Next year, though, and it really is actually interesting. There, but to not only like debunk some of the myths, for example. Example, like there's the idea of the terrorist personality or the terrorist psychopathology, and then it's also really interesting that to see the like four different waves and then the number fifth waves of a terrorism because you've got the first um, terrorism which has started in Russia, like with the um, anarchist, and then uh, you've got the more of, um, advanced terrorists of like today, which are focused on like religion and sometimes the politics. So well, that's really, really interesting and I really am looking forward to writing more about it and researching a lot more. So as always, I always love to hear your thoughts and feelings on today's episode. So you can always email me, conwiley, conwiley.net. You can always leave a comment on the show notes at conwiley.net forward slash podcast. And you can always tweet me on Twitter at sci-fi whitely. I always love to hear from all of you because it always makes the podcast feel more like a conversation. And I should also probably like mention that well, yeah, like I mentioned there about that if you find me on the Facebook at Connor Whiteley Psychology Author, yeah, like author though, then you can also like comment on my Facebook posts because every Monday like I do tend to post the um, podcast episodes there. Yeah, but it's just <laughs> Facebook is not really something that I actually like focus on. And today's episode has been sponsored by Forensic Psychology, so this is a really good sponsor for today's episode. Because forensic psychopathology is a subfield of forensic psychology. So it's really easy to understand and really interesting book that lots of people love. Really helps you to get a deep understanding of what forensic psychology actually is. Because it is not profiling and it does cover a lot more. And of course it covers a lot of stuff really exciting and actively. So it also goes into the methodologies. So if you're interested in learning more about forensic psychology, sex offending, rehabilitation, the theories of offending and so many more great topics that I really cannot recommend enough, then definitely check out, check out Forensic Psychology. Available from all major ebook and audiobook retailers and you can order the payback and the hardback version from Amazon, your local bookstore or local library if you request it. So let's move on to the content of today's episode. So we're moving on to the content part of today's episode. So we're going to be talking about what is forensic psychopathology and this is just such a brilliant episode that I'm actually just going to dive into it. So generally speaking, as supported by Ray 2018, psychopathology is used in clinical psychology to talk about mental health conditions and is the scientific study of them through investigations and specialised treatments where experts determine the causes of the condition and how to treat them. Then there is a subfield within this subfield that investigates how mental conditions influence our behaviours and thoughts. 
their form of forensic psychopathology is at something a lot more nuanced and challenging, in my opinion, since this field takes the study of psychopathology and combines it with the legal system, resulting in a discipline that focuses on the psychopathological theories and practices and how they apply within the criminal justice system. Now, I must confess that reading some of the literature in this field is, to be honest, it's just her shaking. Because, as you know, my background is mainly in clinical psychology, and the field is turning towards a more neutral and less blaming and less damaging language. So, what with more of this research using words like mental disorder, mental problems, and more, it is very head shaking. The difference between forensic psychology and forensic psychopathology. Now, if you're like me, then you would probably don't see the immediate difference between, between forensic psychopathology and your everyday forensic psychology. Nevertheless, forensic psychology has a much wider focus than mental conditions, and even when forensic psychology focuses on mental health and conditions, it tends to focus on mental conditions in the legal arena, such as courtrooms and mechanisms like in our sanity pleads, and practicing clinical psychology in a forensic setting like a prison's wall 2013. In addition, forensic psychology experts conduct their psychology assessments on people who are involved in the legal system, for example, victims, criminals and other people, with these experts being highly trained individuals in that clinical methods and they have experience with the law as well. And this is absolutely critical when we bear in mind that forensic psychologists have both a law and ethical responsibility for the cases like insanity and competence hearing, child abuse and custody cases, psychological evaluations, victims of crimes, counselling services, offender programmes as well as diagnosis and treatment plans. Therefore, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, forensic psychologists are highly trained people while with them having to learn a PhD, be licensed and be board certified by a professional body in order to do their jobs, as well as they absolutely must have a experience with the law, as their job requires them to consult, advise and to provide professional experience within the courtroom. More on forensic psychopathology. Now we have a better understanding of how a forensic psychology is a different in this case, let's refocus on what psychopathology actually involves. Therefore, whilst forensic psychopathology has elements and strongly draws on a clinical and psychological applications within the legal system, the entire aim of this subfield is a different to forensic psychology, since the main aim of a forensic psychopathology is a focus on the accurate diagnosis of mental health conditions so where they can accurately address, diagnose and create the best treatment plans before interpreting the information and handing it over to the courts. One such example of the work could be that experts are required from time to time to investigate abnormal mental processes like thinking and reasoning that might influence a person's judgment for committing a crime. This information could be used to determine if the accused that can now be wholly responsible for the crime convicted or whether their condition should be a significant factor when the court makes its decision. Consequently, it is absolutely critical that psychopathologists study mental conditions to determine how the conditions will affect a person's behaviour and thoughts, especially when it comes to committing crimes. Forensic Psychopathology Analysis and Coatability 
when it comes to un understanding psychopathology, a person's ability to make decisions based on their judgment, insight, morality and their reasoning are critical. However, their capacity to do things can be impaired because of psychological reasons like neurological, mental and physiological conditions as well as drugs and those drugs include both legal and illegal substances. As a result, a forensic psychopathologist has to evaluate a person's criminal responsibility due to these factors and they are liable for reviewing these cases and can affect the court's decision making. For example, Dinamera and all 2013 discussed and concluded that criminal responsibility should be thought about and examined carefully and independently to ensure that statutory provisions that regulate age requirements are met, as age is another critical factor when it comes to criminal responsibility, in addition to competence and psychopathology. The challenges in forensic psychopathology. Nevertheless, this field of psychology isn't far from it without challenges or difficulties, like most fields, um, to be honest, as it is very difficult to define a diagnosis from a condition. This is even more true for people who don't meet the minimal criteria for mental health conditions or a type of psychological impairment. And I suppose in, in that course of law, subsyndromal conditions don't carry as much weight. Wait, plus I also want to say that in... Um, Okay, no, well, with that in like two more weeks, we're actually going to have a, a podcast episode that actually looks at this in like a, a bit more depth about is there another possible model where form diagnosing mental conditions and the episode I did love. Also, maladaptive characteristics that do exist, which can provide a um, differential or provisional diagnoses, but diagnosable conditions cannot be provided if the minimal criteria aren't met. Or they don't meet the additional specifications listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders Fifth Edition. <laughs> I really do hate like reading it out like um, in a full. <laughs> Nor can a diagnosis be given if the symptoms are in a consistent with DSM. Another major downside for forensic psychopathology is that there is limited empirical and evidence-based research and the framework and the theoretical framework so that can advance the field. Therefore, without progression happening in clinical assessments and the psychological testing to determine if a person has a mental condition or not, forensic psychopathologists cannot effectively examine the critical diagnostic systems to establish the best treatment practices that is a critical that is a critically needed in legal cases, as well as insufficient research and applications of theories that can compromise the effectiveness of clinical programs. Resynthesism, also known as re-offending, and that's a lot easier to say, um, studies and criminal prevention strategies. The reason why this is a problem is because of the lack of pro-aggression and insufficient research can make the advice and the consultation of a forensic psychopathologist not 100% reliable, at no fault of their own. As this field of psychology focuses particularly on criminal offences, sanity, mental health conditions, temporary and other factors that are widely considered in legal cases and everyone has the rights to due a process and a fairness within the criminal justice system. But here's the key. In order to have all of that, you will need to have effective, reliable and valid testing and assessment practices and that they need to be proficient too. So but that's why this is a problem for the field and why more research does need to be done, done to try and help fill in some of the gaps in the literature.
future and conclusion. With most of the podcast audience that have been clinical psychology students and professionals, we all know that the impact of mental health conditions on people's lives and the effect it can have on their friends, family and society as a whole. But forensic psychopathology takes a more nuanced look at how it impacts the legal system and whilst it is fascinating and an important field, there are some stark problems. Which is why it is absolutely critical that there is more of awareness and education about this field of psychology so it can become more expansive as well as legitimate both in the legal and forensic psychology communities. Also, but whilst there is overlap between forensic psychology and psychopathology, we do need as a community and professionals to help establish the difference between the two, as both fields have different objectives of clinical expertise and services in a legal context in different ways. And then finally, research. More research and making sure that it continues is just critical for the future of a field to improve policy and decision-making processes within the criminal justice system. So overall, I really do hope that you've enjoyed learning about um, this fascination and the subfield of, uh, of psychology. Before this episode, I had absolutely no idea that this subfield even even existed. So I uh, definitely learned a lot. And I hope that we're all a bit more aware now about the, uh, about the problems facing a forensic psychopathology. And maybe, just maybe, you uh, might be able to uh, be the one to change it in the future. You never know. So I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode and that you got something out of it. I know that I did and I always do love learning about forensic psychology. So if you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, then please share it with them. I'm always really grateful when you wonderful people help spread the word about the podcast. And definitely check out Forensic Psychology, available in, in all the usual places, a plus audiobook format. But if you didn't want to buy a book, but you still wanted to give the podcast a bit of like one-time support, then you can now buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Connor Whiteley. Have a great day, everyone, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to see the show notes, then please go to connorwhitesley.net. And if you want a free Ada book psychology box set, then please go to connorwhitesley.net. Have a great day and I'll see you next time.